News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. It's F-A-Q NYC. I'm Harry Siegel, here with the executive producer, Alex Brooklyn. Professor Christina Greer is away this week. We're going to be talking about sex work and the decriminalization movement. And joining us in moments will be Emma Whitford to give us the lay of the land from her extensive local reporting on this. After that, we'll talk to newly elected Queen State Senator Jessica Ramos, who's been a leader of the rhetorical and now the legislative push toward decriminalization. Then, I spoke with Georgetown professor Peter Edelman about the criminalization of poverty in America and New York City. Finally, Victoria Bekempis talks with Alex about some mob stuff and some other stuff that happened in the courts. We get a little silly. I sing Aristocats. The Godfather is disgust. Let's get to it. Right now, we have Emma Whitford. Emma Whitford. Reporter who's been covering this uh, thoroughly over the last few years. Hello. Thanks for having me. So, Emma, can you give us a bit of a primer on this issue, decriminalizing sex work, Who's for it? Who's against it? Why it matters? What happened? Sure thing. I will do my best. So last year, we had this federal legislation called SESTA-FOSTA that passed, and it had an immediate chilling effect because what it did is it made it impossible for sex workers to advertise and really communicate online. Websites got scared of hosting this stuff. So that um, was a nationwide galvanization of sex workers who decided to speak up, be really vocal. Um, And that issue, uh, you know, fast forward to today, has become really centralized in New York. I think advocates, sex workers, survivors of trafficking here understand that a lot of state laws impact their lives. Um, So uh, it's interesting to have Jessica Ramos on because she represents the borough of Queens, which has a huge immigrant population. And also uh, a lot of these arrests around prostitution take place in her district. Um, specifically last year, we saw a spike in loitering for the purpose of prostitution arrests. Um, that's basically when police arrest people accused of doing street-based sex work. Um, those arrests had been declining steadily since at least 2012. And then just last year, we saw them spike 180%. All around the city? um, That was the citywide spike, but more than half of those arrests took place in Queens, Um, And there were none in Manhattan, none in Staten Island. And then the rest were distributed in the Bronx and Brooklyn. Wow. So Queens is like really central in this issue. It's playing out on on the Queens stage. Yeah, definitely. Um, And it's not just uh, arrests on the street. There also is pretty extensive policing in Queens of massage establishments, um, which employ a lot of immigrant Asian women. Um, and there's a prostitution-related charge for basically giving a massage without a license. Um, in late 2017, I reported extensively with journalist Melissa Jira Grant about the death of a 36-year-old massage worker named Yang Song. Um, she fell to her death from a third-story apartment on 40th Road in Flushing um, in the midst of an NYPD vice raid. So I think that drew a lot of attention to the consequences of this type of policing. Was she being trafficked? Why were the police there? Uh, No. The reason the police were there, um, we later learned from the Queens DA's report, is they were simply responding to allegations of prostitution taking place in that place of business. So that, you know, points to what are we really policing here? Is it like a public nuisance or human trafficking? In this case, not trafficking. So another important thing going on in Queens this year is we've got the first competitive DA race in 
25 years. Um, DA Richard Brown is retiring. He's quite, yeah, he's, his, his term is up. So now there are seven people challenging him. Is he a conservative DA or is he? Yeah, there, I mean, there are things that in you've seen. Um, yeah, I know you had Eric Gonzalez on and uh, even Cy Vance in Manhattan are at least having discussions about decarceration. Um, they put forward policies about, you know, let's not prosecute turnstile jumpers. Um, Queens has never done anything in that regard. Um, as other DAs condemn ICE in the courts, Richard Brown has been silent on that. Um, but now democracy is coming to Queens and maybe some wave of reform with it? Yeah. And uh, so everyone is, you know, all these candidates are talking about making fewer low-level arrests, uh, asking for cash bail seldom or never. Um, and this question of decriminalizing sex work has been put to all the candidates, which I think is another sign of it being a mainstream issue. Um, and there are a few candidates, uh, Tiffany Caban and Jose Nieves, who have already said that they fully support decrim NY. And what are the two sides of the argument? Sure. So uh, in February, Decrim NY launched. It's a coalition of about 30 organizations focused on, you know, the rights of sex workers, immigrants, um, you know, prison abolition groups. And uh, their position is that New York should be the first state in the country to decriminalize the sale and purchase of sex. And they say that doing so will uh, destigmatize sex work increase safety for people in the sex trades and also survivors of trafficking, and then ultimately um, build trust with law enforcement so that resources can shift towards actual human trafficking. Um, on the other side, there's this uh, sort of new alliance that's cropped up in direct opposition to decrim and why they're call calling themselves the New York Alliance Against the Legalization of Prostitution. But they have some old school organizations Yes, on their side, you've like got, now. Yep, the National Organization for Women is involved, um, the Coalition Against Trafficking in Women, this New York State service provider called Sanctuary for Families. Um, they seem very, they are, they are definitely very concerned with any uh, legislation that would decriminalize uh, the purchase of sex, um, as well as any of the sort of promotional roles in the sex trade. Um, their position is that, you know, sex work should not exist, that it's it's degrading and that, um, you know, this would put people in a vulnerable position. So they put forth what is called commonly the Swedish model? Yeah. So it's this longstanding model, also known as end demand. And the idea is that if you focus policing on the people who purchase sex and then the so-called pimps, which pimp is a tricky word. It's pretty racialized. It's like kind of in a vacuum. Um, but, th but that's a word that, that they were using a lot of their press conference. Um, you know, if we, um, if, if policing is focused on those people, then, um, you know, we won't have sex work anymore. No one will be exploited. That's kind of the position. Yeah. And some have called that unrealistic. Yeah. Decrim and wise counter argument to that is that sex work is always going to exist. It's the oldest profession um, for reasons that are complicated. Um, you know, many people do it for monetary reasons. So this policing, continued policing of any aspect of it is just going to continue to stigmatize, marginalize, and make it generally more dangerous. And so where is law enforcement, and specifically New York law enforcement, on this? Yeah, so the NYPD um, in 2017 basically endorsed end demand. They said, we're going to shift our focus to the quote unquote, like pimps and the Johns, and we're going to 
you know, ramp up our vice unit on trafficking and arrest fewer sex workers. Uh, Commissioner uh, Jimmy O'Neill said we can't arrest our way out of this problem. And they were um, and, you know, data shows that there have been fewer prostitution arrests um, in total year over year since then. Trafficking arrests are up slightly. Um, but the contradiction is that, you know, sex workers are still being arrested. And when you ask the NYPD why, they will normally say that they've been responding to, quote, community complaints. So clearly there's still like a quality of life concern that the NYPD is. Yeah. I'm not sure if anyone is interested, but there have been many uh, air quotes that we can't relate to you on sound that Emma has been using throughout our primer on the subject. Emma, thank you so much for uh, giving us pretty much a look at the issue. What is next? Like, wh where are we now? So where we are now is Decrim NY is actively supporting two bills that are already in the legislature. One of them would eliminate that loitering statute, which I was earlier talking about. These arrests have spiked and there's a lot of support rallying around that. And then another bill that would help clear records of trafficking survivors. And what happens next is figuring out bills that would decriminalize the purchase of sex and uh, some related stuff to that. Thank you so much, Emma Whitford. You can read her reporting on Documented, The Appeal, and Jezebel. Newly elected Queen State Senator Jessica Ramos. 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 Well, let's jump right in. Thanks for joining us. So you're coming right from this Safer New York rally? I am. I am. Um, a few of us gathered, despite the rain, on the steps of City Hall um, in order to start talking about the importance of a package of bills that we call Safer New York in order to increase transparency and accountability uh, within the police department. And uh, obviously, every time we, we touch the subject, many people uh, think that we are vilifying police officers or that we don't need police officers. And we all know that we appreciate being able to call 911 when we need them, when we're in an emergency. It's much more about us ensuring that there is accountability to make sure that we can really trust police officers. You know, good police officers have nothing to worry about. We just believe that if you're a public servant, there should be access to public records about who you are and how you conduct yourself in your role. Black and brown communities have been over-policed for a very long time. I'm someone who's been stopped and frisked when I was younger, and I have seen how broken windows as a whole has really ended up ripping apart a lot of the families in my community and, and beyond. Um, and I think that ensuring that the attorney general's office uh, has special pro prosecutori prosecutorial powers um, is important. Repealing 50A is important in order for there to be transparency about those uh, records on police officers um, and ensuring that the uh, marijuana law that we hope to pass truly does create an industry that speaks to the needs of our community, expunges records, um, and that that wealth isn't siloed in major corporations, um, but that everybody really does share uh, in the profit. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Astoria, Queens. Uh, I, I was born in Elmhurst. Um, I've lived in Corona. I lived briefly in East Elmhurst. I live in Jackson Heights now. I have lived in every single neighborhood in my district. So Queens through and through. Born and raised. Born and raised. And raising. And raising. One of the 
biggest reasons why I was super excited to get you here was to talk about the decrim, what I guess could be classified as a movement now, since there's how many organizations? We're a movement. Kind of, so we're a movement. Yeah, you're a movement, so you're a movement. Um, and kind of parse out for a bunch of people in New York who don't, who may not exactly understand the argument. I talk to a lot of people who are pretty versed in just generally what's going on in the city, and a lot of them don't really understand the quote-unquote sides and like what's at stake and uh, what the differences are. Now, a lot of the loitering arrests, the young woman Yang Song who committed suicide, the Queen's DA race, the special courts, a lot of this is taking place and being played out very prominently in Queens. So can you maybe speak a little bit to some of the discussion you're having as you call them with your neighbors? Um, which I, I really like that. I've heard you say it a few times. It's a fact. That they're your neighbors, not your constituents, and to refer to them that way. And um, just what general vibe are you getting as far as the two sides of that argument? So if I may start um, at the beginning, this is largely why I ran for office. I ran against someone, uh, may he rest in peace, who had a very particular rhetoric about Roosevelt Avenue um, and, and what some people may consider seediness, other people might consider grit. Wait, now, tell me what, what Roosevelt, just for our listeners, like Roosevelt Avenue, what that... So Ro Roosevelt Avenue um, in my district traverses from Woodside through Jackson Heights, through Corona, all the way to City Field. It's underneath the elevated 7 train, um, and at night um, really comes to life. Lots of bars, massage parlors, tattoo shops, uh, sex workers on the street, uh, street vendors selling food, and, and people having fun. And so for me, when, you know, growing up in Queens, growing up in my district, hearing rhetoric my entire life about quote unquote, cleaning up Roosevelt Avenue, the people on Roosevelt Avenue being dirty, all of this negative rhetoric about actual human beings who are just fighting to survive was very troubling. Um, I always had a, a sense of uh, and largely from my parents, who are always very progressive and taught me to respect the struggle of undocumented people and get to know people before you really judge uh, as a whole and make blanket statements. The response to that rhetoric that existed previously, and, and this is actually most apparent in, in some New York Times articles from the past that my predecessor participated in, was largely around just... We need more police officers on Roosevelt Avenue. We have to clean this all up, and only the police officers can well, do it. Was this at and the that's same bullshit. time with, like, broken windows? Is this going on simultaneously? Yeah. Like, late 90s, we're talking yeah, about? So, so we're talking about early aughts. So, okay. So, I mean, I had heard the rhetoric in the late 90s, but I was younger then, so I, I don't think I was as conscientious as I am now, um, or as I was even as a teenager, uh, because I was already politically active but I just was always troubled, and then it happened to me. I was on my way back from Manhattan with a couple of my girlfriends, um, and I got off at the train station on Roosevelt Avenue and 75th Street. On that corner, police officers of the 110th Precinct stopped us. There was like about six of us. It was a summer night. Our skirts were shorter, and, and I think a couple of us were wearing shorts, and 
It was around midnight, I think. I don't really remember. But um, they stopped us and they frisked us. They really frisked us. And it was because they thought that we were working the street. Obviously, we weren't. We were on our way home. But it really impacted the way I think about women uh, and how they're treated by police officers, whether they're doing the work or not. So now that I'm a legislator, in looking at the data and the statistics and understanding that 94% of arrests are black women and understanding that my transgender neighbors who are continuously discriminated against when it comes to unemployment and housing, right, understanding that LGBTQ youth who are, you know, abandoned or neglected by their families, people with disabilities who also face housing and employment discrimination, those are uh, the groups of people we largely see in this line of work. And it speaks to the greater ills in our society because we continuously marginalize uh, communities that we think to be different. Um, and this is the result of that. We've created the blackest of markets. When I was a teenager, there was the Hetrick Martin Center, which is now the Harvey Milk School, and a lot of peer counseling for LGBTQ youth. But I don't think the Q was added, actually, in nomenclature That's a back then thing, yeah yeah um so back then in the 90s there would be a lot of peer counseling and every news story you heard it became the harvey milk school which then got a lot of good press but before that the hedrick martin center which is still a center but not in the same location all you would ever hear about it was when any of the young people who frequented that center would get busted for prostitution on you know, you never really heard about, okay, this is services for homeless youth, this is sex education, this is free condoms, this is, you know, a, a lot of the programs that they did there, this is helping people work out their scholarship funds, things like that. Um, the revolving door on sex work, and I don't use the word prostitution, is around $175 per day per person. There are many aspects that are beneficial to society in decriminalizing sex work. It's not only about protecting these different uh, constituencies from violence, whether it be from customers or from police themselves. It's also a public health issue, but it also saves us money as a whole. One of the, the big things that I've been hearing a lot in the Queen's DA races and the debates are the HTIC courts, mm -hmm. the the, the spe and also... Eric Gonzalez, who was on our show. I love him. <laughs> I'm fond of him, too, but he's not exactly 100% with you on this issue. I know. Um, now, he was talking about how he uh, likes sex workers and that his promise to not prosecute and that there they can actually suss out whether these people are being trafficked or forced into sex work against their will. What's your opinion on these like separate courts that are specifically set to help, and I'm making air quotes here, but nobody can see them, help sex workers? The idea that we can save, air quotes again, everybody, that we can save people through arrests is a fallacy. The entire purpose behind decriminalizing sex work is for us to distinguish between circumstance, choice, and coercion. We can't pretend to lump all of the sex workers together and then claim that we're going to magically be able to deduce who is being trafficked and who is not. It's so much more complicated than that. There's a reason why that system hasn't been working. Um, and so here, what we're looking for is to A, 
get rid of this silly law that if any of us get arrested and the police officer finds condoms on our person, that that is somehow evidence of sex work. Hello, safe sex is a right. We are all entitled to have safe sex. Condoms are a good thing. It can't possibly be evidence that you are selling uh, sex services. Do you think that the implication is that there are some sex workers that aren't carrying condoms because they're worried about... So, there's a whole public health issue with sex work as a whole, and in fact, we've seen in other places where it's been decriminalized that uh, the rates of HIV and STDs dramatically drop. That's something that we're looking to do. It's 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 a major reason why we believe decriminalizing sex work is good for society as a whole. But the the other part of it is, of course, in order to empower sex workers to report violence against them. There's literally a, uh, a language in the penal code, in, in a statute, that says that if you have prior arrests related to sex work, somehow you can't report rape. You can't report rape. You can't. Re it's impossible for you to have been raped. And I'm sorry, but consent is a thing. You know, it's one thing to have an in a sexual interaction where both parties have consented, whether there was money exchanged or not, to where s somebody just thinks that because you're a sex worker, anybody can just touch you. That's not true, and that's not fair. There's that, there's the, there's the loitering on sidewalks issue, and ultimately what we're looking to do is hopefully vacate uh, sex workers' um, criminal records so that if they can and, and, and choose to leave that business and seek another career, a different job, that they're able to do so without being penalized, you know, during background checks. What would you say to the argument that most proponents of, I guess, the air quotes again, Swedish method, um, or the, the Nordic model, Nordic model, Nordic. Um, the, the, the organization now, uh, the oh, worry boy. that without being able to air quotes again, detain sex workers, not being able to suss them out between who's being trafficked and who has agency, but also that you would be <laughs> legitimizing, um, pimping because it would be harder to no, prosecute right but it would be harder to prosecute that is that is their argument i am if not I'm... going to delve into white feminism right now but i will it's say a longer episode for another day we will invite you back gladly however i don't understand how we can advocate for safe abortions and be pro-choice and talk about a woman's anatomy over our own bodies and then make an argument against sex work. It's our body and it's our choice for everything. That, that's the entire thing. It, it is not the government's job to determine what is moral or not. It is our, it is our job, I, I believe, as government to ensure that we're protecting every citizen in every sort of way. It is the oldest profession we have never been able to deter people away from sex work as a whole. We probably never will. I mean, it's been millennia. At this point, it's much more important, I think, to ensure that we are aware of what's happening in that industry and ensure that we are chipping away at the, at the black market, chipping away at the human trafficking and, sex, and, and sexual trafficking uh, um, 
industry. I have one other question. So I was recently in Thailand and I had a question. I said to people I had encountered, how do people know if the sex workers or the massage parlors, if the women have agency? And I was like kind of laughed at, but then someone, someone, I was, it was a, yeah, it was a, it was a question. Like, how do you guarantee if you're not, if you don't want to be like a complete piece of shit in Thailand, but you still want to engage in that, like, how do you oh, good. We can find, here. yes, how do you find if you're, if the, the, the place your frequency, the women have an agency, and only one person was able to answer that question, it's a, what uh, was so the answer? The answer was that there is one NGO uh, called Empower, and they were able to set up one in all of Thailand, uh, both Bangkok and Chiang Mai, they were able to set up a single massage parlor, sex worker owned and sex worker run. Mm -hmm. So this got me to thinking, are there programs in place? Are there things that are being advocated for that instead of shaming sex work, more help sex workers retain and empower them to have agency? That was the first time I'd really heard about it in Thailand. And again, there's only one massage parlor in Thailand that has this model. But I wondered if there was anything similarly that was being worked on here. No, not that I know of. Um, and that's something that I would love to explore. I mean, again, I think I think one of one of the bigger goals at hand here is ensuring that we are empowering sex workers to seek help. Look, as communities of color and, and kind of going circling back to the safer New York press conference where we were before, we have serious issues in black and brown communities, and I would argue in Asian communities as well here in how we interact with police. It has an often gone very well, even if we're the ones reporting crimes. I have constituents who often come and tell uh, me and and, and my team about how they've asked for translators and they're not provided with them. There's a lot that needs to happen in order to build that trust. Um, And and of course, all of these issues are interconnected um, because nothing takes place in a vacuum, but arguably, you know, whether it's sex workers who are working on the street, sex workers who are working indoors, sex workers who are being held against their will, because we do know that many people are paying back uh, what they owe the coyote who helped them cross the border, for example, and and they hold their passports in the meantime. Um, But nevertheless, we want to make it easier for them to report the violence and to report these things that are happening against them. Do you think that's even possible for... um undocumented uh, women to really feel safe, even, let's just say, in a perfect world, uh, cops are on board, there are perfect mechanisms in place, there are no arrests being made, and there's a lot of safety being felt. For undocumented sex workers, there's still this other huge layer of, you know, if maybe if they go to NYPD, they're okay. But as soon as they enter that court, I mean, the court's officers are not with the, the sanctuary cities. Um, so, like, how, how do you... We're not really a sanctuary city. And how do you define a sanctuary city? Well, yeah, the vague language around that. There's a, great, there's a great congressional... Congress has a whole office of nerds who literally live in a basement, and they study these things. And any member of Congress can say, hey, what is something? So somebody asked a couple years ago, what's a sanctuary city? And there's this incredible 15-page report which boils down to... We have Nothing. no idea. Yeah, I mean, the closest to it... I mean... We don't have to go too 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 deep here, but I mean, the closest to it would probably be LA County, um, in in and in in the way that 
they ensure that they're not cooperating with law enforcement and the federal government. Um, I was actually at the mayor's office when uh, Nicole Maliotakis and Castorino. The, the guy from Staten Island. Yeah, that man. And they warned um, about, the, uh, they, about the licenses. They sued. Yeah. They sued to get information about yeah. who was asking for an IDNYC, which, which, you know, at the time we had been retaining supportive documents uh, for identification and for uh, proof of residency. Um, so th- these are the municipal IDs after the state driver's licenses, which we'll come back to didn't work, uh, that anyone can have, and you don't need to show immigration status for them. You can't use them to bank or for other things. You do get museum benefits and whatnot to encourage people- Library card and a whole other To sign up. And the warnings at the time were the local Republicans who ended up suing, and what if we get some horrible Republican president? Yeah. Uh, What's going to happen to the database of information? It did. And it happened. I I have mine. It does give you good discounts, and it's very helpful to get if you are documented, just so it's not a card that actually announces your status for those who have it. Yeah, no, quick plug. This is why it's so important for those of us who are residents and for those of us who are citizens to get the card. Yes. Um, What they were looking for was essentially to understand where there were clusters of uh, undocumented communities, as if we don't know where they are already, um, but in order to to obtain that information. Um, And ultimately, the city of New York did the right thing, of course, in making sure that we're protecting everybody. Um, But but it's really, really troubling. I mean, we, we don't need to live in this crazy surveillance uh, place, it's about building the community up, not the government, you know, kind of clamping down on on the way we live. Do you think there is a time and soon that we would be able to, in certain cases, like welcome sex workers into the community, into these communities? Welcome in mine. Into these communities we're building in like a real um, announced, very, very public way. And do you think that the you know, the midterms of 2018, where the blue wave that you kind of rode in on, do you think that's one of the central points? Is that, um, is that like a a goal for you guys within this decriminalization movement? I I, I mean, I don't know that I, I don't know that I have agency to speak on behalf of the greater movement. Um, I can say that I believe in doing my due diligence personally, and which is why I've been shifting the rhetoric around, oh, let's just throw police officers at the problem. Uh, We actually are speaking to the sex workers themselves. I have held meetings with sex workers in my district office where they have told me stories about A, how they ended up in sex work, but B, what has happened to them and how police officers treat them. And whether they're standing outside on their sidewalk, they're not necessarily working, they're outside smoking a cigarette, they went to buy a gallon of milk, you know, they needed something else, but because a police officer saw them and knows that they had been, they have been engaged in sex work, they get arrested again, right? Like these, these are, these are things that, that inequities, um, that, that are really unfair. And, and I feel like I didn't really talk about the Nordic model at all and my issue with it. Um, and, and I actually really appreciate Kamala Harris who's starts, who's starting to talk about it, but she's supportive of the Nordic model. And the problem is, and we've seen it in France, it actually ends up leading to more violence because in surveilling, in surveilling the customers, you are surveilling the workers. You can't say that you're not. And in communities like mine, there's that's a problem. I have a ton of day laborers who are my neighbors who are here in this country alone and sometimes seek company, consensual company. And it's, it almost seems as though, um, you know, 
we're leading both sex workers and customers into deportation but how in many you, ways. Can you talk about the uh, the intersection here of these issues with criminalizing sex work and the issues with undocumented immigrants and when you're talking about bringing people into the full community and sort of outside of the over-surveilled and over-policed state because it seems like there's a fair amount of overlap. And what should New York be doing to provide sanctuary that it isn't? That's a loaded question. You want to break that down for me a little bit? Sure. We can do it one part, then the other. (laughs) There's a lot there. Yeah, but, but, you know, the the thread running through a lot of your answers has been, and and listening to you speak about this previously, and the Daily News op-ed and elsewhere, um, is that there's this intersection between these these over-policed and over-surveilled communities. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. a lot of the issues sort of cross from one part to the other. Yeah. Yeah, and, and we've seen increased policing, especially under the, the, the current uh, presidency. Um, we've seen ICE in our community a lot in my district. Um, and look, I mean, there was a gang shooting in my district that made it into the State of the Union, right? Um, and again, these are recurring problems for a reason, right? And it's the definition of insanity. We can't continue to do the same thing over again and pretend that somehow these issues are going to stop. It's why I'm trying to secure funding for a credible messengers program in order for former gang members to speak to current gang members and start to to, to sort of de-escalate and, and, and hopefully deter people from, from joining gangs. Uh, we have failed to provide our youth, to provide marginalized communities with the resources that they need for survival. That's why at the crux of all of this is discrimination when it comes to housing and employment, things that people need in order to provide for themselves. Republicans hate, um, you know, uh, unions, hate uh, raising the minimum wage, but these are actually all measures that help people in order to not have to depend on public benefits. But in it's, New York, where, where, where Democrats are running everything now, and you are one of are those we? lawmakers, it depends on who you count as a Democrat, but on Thank paper, you. certainly. What what are the things that should be happening to provide sanctuary and safety to these various groups that we don't have yet? I mean, we're focused on decriminalization here, but what else fits under that, um, that umbrella, and what might we get to this year? I mean— Look, we're in an affordable housing crisis that contributes to all of this. We are in a public transit crisis. We don't provide driver's licenses for every New Yorker the way we used to. I I feel like in the whole driver's licenses uh, conversation, we rarely talk about how this is something we're trying to restore. It is not new. Um, and, And so empowering people to provide for themselves is always the answer, I think, to safer communities and for less dependence on on public benefits. We want to we want to allow people to be able to, to, to be to have agency, as you said, but also to be, you know, in charge of their own lives and, and to live their best selves and fulfill their potential. I mean that's that's ultimately what it is. And and it's hard when we're when we're living in a state where corporations don't pay fair taxes, millionaires and billionaires don't pay fair taxes, and you know, we don't have money to fully fund our public schools. We we secured one point two billion dollars in, in, in the one house budget in the Senate, one point one billion in, in in the assembly. We're waiting for the governor to stand up for our kids. It's extremely frustrating. 
And on top of that, we have an MTA that doesn't work, that doesn't allow for working people to get around. Just one more, back to you, but when when did we provide uh, uh, driver's licenses to everyone in the state? Before 2001. So before 2001, we were giving driver's licenses to undocumented people. Was this a 9-11 related thing? So the whole idea behind restoring the right of to drive to undocumented people is really important. And yes, it was before 2001 uh, when it was law. Um, after 9-11, I think the overall xenophobia and Islamophobia that that, that swept uh, New York uh, really ended up in us taking rights away from taxpaying New Yorkers. Um, and this is really important. Can I share an anecdote with you guys about... Please. So last week, I traveled to Wayne County, New York, um, Lyons, a border town uh, with Canada. I also carry the farm workers bill. Um, and and I'm, I'm really, knock on wood, working hard to pass it. We just secured our 32nd co-sponsor, so I have a technical majority from the state Senate. Pause um, for one second and just tell our listeners about the farm workers bill, because if you don't know, this is crazy. It is mind-boggling, right? So check this out. So if you work on a farm in New York, you do not have the right to a day off or overtime pay or unemployment benefits, or, nor do you have the right to collectively bargain, which is mind-boggling. You're all, especially excluded from all the rights that apply to all the other workers all in the state. These, all these uh, farm workers are fighting for is parity with every single other worker uh, in New York State. So I'm doing my due diligence. I traveled to a, to a Republican state Senate district in Wayne County, New York, uh, right uh, uh, on the border with Canada. And I visited uh, with farms, spoke to farmers and farm workers. Um, and what was, what was most astonishing to me is, of course, given how rural the area is, these farm workers are completely isolated. And far away from, you know, their downtowns. And oftentimes their children go to school in those downtowns, but they're not able to travel for parent-teacher conferences or their children's performance because they don't have the right to a, a driver's license and public transportation is non-existent. And if you... if, if Whatever for informal uh, system of, of transportation there is is extremely expensive. Um, so so things like going grocery shopping, being there for your kids, going to uh, doctor's appointments if you get uh, hurt on the farm, which is a real thing, is 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 really crazy. And you know a lot of these apple orchards, which is which is the uh, which is the the crop there that's most prevalent, the housing quarters are literally on the orchards where there are pesticides. They are breathing this stuff in day in and day out. And are we talking about another population here that often has concerns about going to the police, say, or dealing with their rights? Yeah, I mean, so there, like a there, there's a lot of uh, border patrol concerns, um, which, which is ironically, of course, even the farmers, well, they don't want to lose their workers, and there's a high turnover of farm workers in New York right now because uh, many of them are so scared of, of the border patrol um, that the farming in New York, as I think, is in somewhat of a transition. And, of course, we want to help farmers uh, thrive, but we want them to be able to do it in a humane way. So you're in Wayne County. Um, because you're pushing the farm workers bill that will protect a lot of these these farm workers. Yeah, I'll, I'll be traveling around around upstate New York for for the next month or so, visiting uh, different uh, uh, 
different farms. I mean, I'm, I'm not foreign to farm work. Um, I'm, I'm the granddaughter of coffee farmers um, in Colombia. My, my, uh, many of my cousins still farm. Um, when my parents would get rid of me every summer and put me on a plane with my sisters to Colombia, that's where we would help. Um, and, and I really feel for them. I mean, we, we don't, we rarely uh, acknowledge the humanity in people and understand that everybody deserves dignity and respect. So the anecdote that you had when you were in Wayne County... I was speaking to the isol their isolation and the ah, okay. need for the so driver's the, licenses. The, right, the driver's licenses and that they're, in, they're similar. That, to me, you know, it's it's every city family pastime to, like, take a drive up to some of these apple orchards in the fall if you can make it. It's like one day you can spend with your kids, and I think a lot of people... And that's just leisure. That's just leisure, yeah. Um, and I think a lot of people, the more they know... The, le the the more things that nobody wants to do anymore without, like, fighting for the rights of the other people. I, just to come back to the decriminalization movement, how do you feel specifically? Do you think these court – what do you think should happen to the – adjunct courts, the human trafficking, the HTIC courts? So I'm, I'm working uh, with advocates to really – represent them. I am not going to pretend that I understand the uh, criminal justice system fully. I am not an attorney. Um, but I, I do feel that it is my responsibility to advocate for their safety. Um, I think that what they want to see is for it to be decriminalized and, and if anything, really refocus resources towards finding those who are doing the trafficking. That's who the courts should be for. Do you think that law enforcement, is, as we heard from uh, Eric last week, like, are, like, what is the practical solution to detaining sex workers in order to find out, uh, to go up the chain? I mean, classically, even when you come to organized crime, you usually, uh, or law enforcement would start at the bottom and try to get the next person up the rung and try to get the next person up the rung and try to get the next person up the rung. So what's the practical solution to like going after? So to me, those two things are not comparable. Okay. Um, organized crime, people are consciously making decisions of committing crimes all the way up and down. This is much more a means of survival. And, no, and, and I wasn't comparing are, them yeah. to the sex workers. I was comparing them to sex traffickers. But, but, but that's what I'm saying. But they right. are not. There are not. They are. Those are not rungs of sex trafficking. Sex workers are not within the rungs of trafficking. They are. They are the victims, right? So it's it, it's much it's much different in More that way. Yeah. Um. And and I, I and I'd say that it hasn't worked. This pretense that by arresting the victims, you're somehow going to get to the people who are really in, in the wrong just traditionally hasn't worked. That's how we've gone, gotten by all this time, and, and the situation hasn't really uh, improved in any way. So basically, we have to try something different. Are there practical solutions on the table to go after uh, traffickers or anyone who would be without engaging in the sex work themselves, exploiting sex workers. Yeah, again, I, I mean, to me, this is twofold. One, refocusing the resources from courts, from law enforcement to really focus on the traffickers themselves and, 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 and you know, just ensure that, that that's really the goal at hand. The other thing is 
minimizing uh, violence, right? It's policies centered around harm reduction in order to empower sex workers to report instances of trafficking and violence against them. That's the change in culture, aside from the change in policy. It's removing that stigma that I think allowing us to, to pull this issue from under the rug for us to, to really start tackling the problem in a serious way. And the uh, Queens district attorney race. So that could be a game changer. It, it will could. be a game changer. We've had the same DA for 27 years criminalizing black and Latino communities. It's been a travesty. But some of the... No matter who wins, it's going to be a game changer? I think so. I think no matter who wins, it would be a game changer. I'll, I'll probably be endorsing later this spring. I'm trying to, you know, see who makes the ballot and, and who makes the best case uh, for protecting our communities and for fairness as a whole. I think beyond thinking about the court of law, we should be thinking about the court of justice. Um, and, and uh, you know, I just, I'm, I'm watching the race very closely. I was very upset that I missed the debate because I was, you know, in Albany talking about budget stuff. Um, but um, but that's something that you'll probably see me become more active in. There's a couple candidates who are just reinforcing kind of status quo or like trying to b bolster more the, the courts rather than yeah. uh, decriminalization. So mm -hmm. probably those are the candidates that so even if they were to go on to become the Queen's DA, you'd still think it's a game changer just because it's anyone uh, different. Uh, uh, yes. Okay. But obviously, policy-wise, I have my preferences, and, and, and I'm watching closely. I understand that Tiffany Caban and I believe Jose Nieves are both the candidates who are seem to be the most knowledgeable and progressive on this particular issue. But I think that, you know, Mina Malik also has a lot of uh, experience in the from the prosecutorial... I hate that saying that word. It's so difficult. Prosecutorial prosecutorial uh, perspective. Perfect. Thank you. Um, for, uh, uh, and and so I think I think that you know it's 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 the race to watch. It's it's for anybody who cares uh, to reform our criminal justice system. We we're really trying to catch up to Brooklyn here. You know. Wow. I haven't <laughs> seen any poll numbers showing like much about public sentiment here. It seems like that there's a big shift in activist energies and where momentum is in Albany yeah. for, for a number of reasons and because of, uh, because of how the IDC thing played yeah. out. Because, yeah. But how, how do you persuade people? And I'm, looking, I'm thinking about Amazon for a minute, which is a separate issue, but where, where you have a great deal of passion on one side and then softer numbers for people who, if they're asked, you know, their opinion is often on the other side. I'm suspecting something similar may be the case here with sex work and decriminalization. So given all the energy and political momentum, how do you persuade the more passive or less involved public to come around on the issue? How do you win hearts and minds? So I, have, I, I too have not seen uh, polls about this issue. I never believe polls. Had I believed polls, I would not have won my election. Um, and I largely think that that's true, especially in Queens. Very rarely do we see a poll that is, whose sample size is actually reflective of our, our diversity, uh, ethnically, when it comes to household income, when it comes to uh, language. I mean, it's just impossible to capture the true sentiment of 
of the population in Queens and especially my district. It's just very difficult. Um, and, and, and so for me, it's just about pushing, pushing the conversation. Look, yesterday I was on Amtrak. I, I was at the Albany station on my way back home. Um, and I ran into two, uh, women activists who, I love and respect. And one of them commended me in, you know, kind of breaking open this conversation. The other one was very concerned about, you know, us empowering the, you know, the pimps and, 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 and all of this. And ultimately, I think that in having this conversation, we'll get closer to the solution because shoving it under the rug has not worked. So I I think that it's just a matter of being brave and having the difficult conversations, much in the same way that is happening around public education right now. I guess one more, like you had told uh, Brian Lair that you were not a proponent, uh, like, or not that you weren't a proponent, that you were not proposing in any way the legalization. Like, it was very different than the issue of marijuana. Yes. That, um, and... And I wondered if in the future there was any thought of bringing people around to eventually legalize this work, or is that a conversation that's not even on the table yet? I'll let you know when we get to the future. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Georgetown professor Peter Edelman. So I'm hoping you can explain for our listeners what the criminalization of poverty means and how this has developed in America. This uh, is an outgrowth uh, of mass incarceration. It's a kind of an evil sibling. Uh, And it it really started from the anti-tax rebellion in in the Reagan years. Uh, And as we know, user fees are everywhere. Uh, And it included uh, the courts and, and... other municipalities, uh, other governments, uh, looking for how to find money to run their courts and so on, and they turned on their own consumers, if you will, the people who were being brought into court and and hitting them with exorbitable uh, fines and fees. And it connects also to money bail because uh, holding people uh, for $500 and not being able to get out and then having to, to plead guilty uh, and then a payment plan takes place, and they get hooked uh, on that. So uh, that's that's the, the sort of uh, fines and fees, and particularly taking away driver's license suspensions. That's uh, something that uh, the states love it everywhere. Forty-four states do that. And this is big uh, because they're looking for money, and so we're talking about 10 million people who've been hit. That's a, at least a... A, a, a thoughtful think of it, uh, and and uh, fifty billion dollars. So that's what it is. But it, but it also goes up into uh, kids who, instead of being sent to the pre- uh, president principal's uh, office, sent to court. Uh, Can I ask you one thing uh, yeah. about driver's licenses? Yes, yeah. th- that in a way takes us to New York City. Yeah. And broken windows policing, yes. which I think is part of this narrative, yes. aggressively policing small yes. ordinances. Yes. But in New York, the revenue for the police has been less significant and driver's licenses are less significant. So I'm curious if the same criminalization of poverty happened here as elsewhere or if it's something of a distinct uh, story. 
Uh, we've just actually, uh, the uh, wonderful organization called the Fines and Fees Justice Center has been looking uh, at the driver's license suspensions in New York and discovered that there are 1.6 pe million people in New York. State. Uh, New York State. Okay. Uh, over uh, the last 28 uh, months. That, that's the, so it's, it's a real problem in, in the state of New York. and, and uh, a group of people are working on in in the uh, uh, legislature to to change that. So the whole question of of uh, women who call the, the police uh, because uh, they need uh, a protection uh, against domestic violence, and if they call uh, police too often, they have the authority to force the landlord to uh, evict uh, the person for calling. And that's, we have that in New York State. Is the person considered a nuisance at that point? Yes, exactly. That, that's the idea. You're being a nuisance. That's, that's exactly the word. And, of course, we know about bail, and that's a major issue in New York right, right now. Uh, hopefully uh, there will be some change on that, and Rikers is Rikers. Uh, so we have aspects of it, particularly when you look about the whole state of New York uh, and the kinds of issues that are involved in the criminalization of poverty you do find out that the issues are there uh, here in New York, in New York State, and partly in the city, as other places in the country. One more local question that's mm -hmm. actually RFK-related. There was the sort of great bail experiment here mm -hmm. where the idea was to, to sort of bail out uh, many of the people who had low cash bails who mm -hmm. were being incarcerated mm -hmm. pre-conviction. Yeah. And generally pre-deal, pre in yeah. fact, not a trial or anything like that. And the Post in particular, the New York Post, raised, raised a great brouhaha about that. Was that a reasonable thing to do, in your view? Yes, what they did is, is uh, quite straightforward, and, and the attack on it is, is ridiculous. Uh, n no person gets out uh, under the, uh, the help of the RFK if a judge hasn't said, that the, that the bail has been set, and that means that if you pay the, the, the bail, you get out. So for somebody to, to say that therefore there's a criminal on the street when the judge has said that allowing bail if they have the money, the, the attack uh, makes no sense. Is the criminal justice reform package that Jared Kushner helped put together and that, that Donald Trump is now crediting himself for substantial uh, progress, no progress, somewhere in between? It's a step. Uh, it's only in the federal system, and it's only uh, about some issues, but it is actually positive. And in this area of the criminalization of poverty, especially things that cost money, um, there are uh, people who are in support of the reforms on, on both in both parties. It's already the, uh, the case that five or six states, uh, as a result of that uh, law being signed into law, are looking at their own states uh, having been impelled by the First Step Act. You've got to give them credit. I wouldn't give them too much, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's a start. Fundamentally, are the solutions here federal or, or local, just given the way our justice system operates and how much autonomy mm. states and, and localities have to, to sort of work out their own systems. These are issues that are largely at the state and local level. The uh, money bail uh, question is largely at the state level, although there are things that, that can be done uh, in, in cities as well with regard to city laws, uh, ordinances. The thing that's harder to get at is the fines and fees because they're very local uh, and you kind of have to catch, you, you literally, we, we find 
new ones all the time. I sort of keep watching all of it, and I just learned about a terrible thing in Lexington County, South Carolina, that the ACLU was working on, uh, where people are being actually, you won't believe this, are convicted without knowing that they had been charged. And so the ACLU is in there and litigating and uh, hoping to clean that up. The, the lawyer just found that kind of by accident. Somebody told her and then she's been working. So these things on fines and fees are, are more uh, local. The driver's licenses uh, uh, can and should be dealt with at the state level. And we're seeing some, uh, a, a number of states are, are doing things. There's a terrific case uh, decision in uh, Tennessee where in federal court they're uh, driving, uh, the suspensions were, uh, were in our uh, unconstitutional. And uh, they have, the judge was very interested. She wrote a 146-page opinion. And uh, there's 250,000 licenses that are up for for uh, being uh, given back. So we see that around the country. The ACLU has got three uh, things in in uh, Montana, in in Arkansas, and uh, Florida to go to their legislatures uh, to change the laws. And so it's happening in a lot of, of different places. The biggest thing is the changes that's taking place with bail. We spoke recently with Eric Gonzalez, the Brooklyn District Attorney, who's just laid out what he says is an ambitious reform agenda. Mm-hmm. We're seeing more of this from prosecutors. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Is, is that good? And are they the right place in the system for discretion and policy making to be happening? It's one of them, and uh, it's been uh, unlikely up until quite recently to have a prosecutor who uh, wants to uh, operate uh, in, a, in a genuinely uh, fair just way. For example, in relation right now uh, in New York State about the New York State pending bail law, uh, there was a, a letter from 12 prosecutors from around the country saying uh, we support uh, the reforms in New York State. Well, that's great. I think we save bail for the end. I think a lot of people haven't been through the justice system. It's almost hard to wrap their heads around. Can you explain how bail criminalizes poverty and uh, what it means to incarcerate people prior to a trial or full proceedings. Well, it's quite simple and, and awful. Uh, and uh, what it is is money bail. The, the, the judge uh, says, uh, and this, this happens on tiny little things, uh, not even misdemeanors, sometimes just violations. A person is, is held uh, for trial and they have to pay $500 or even more to uh, pay for bail if they want to be home while they're waiting for their trial about some dinky little thing. These aren't dangerous people. These aren't the, the bad crimes and so on. And in order to get out, uh, they, they plead guilty. They are not. Uh, and then they get into uh, payment plans and, and they have to pay. Uh, they can't pay on the first payment plan, so then it's con. con- criminal uh, contempt, uh, and it goes on and on, and they owe more and more. You have to get the money out of it, Uh, and that's what we're seeing around the country. That's what we're seeing uh, in this bill uh, in New York. Uh, That's what we're seeing uh, still uh, having trouble getting it done right in California, uh, and there are things in other other places like Kentucky and New Jersey and, and, and Maryland. And basically, what you have to figure out is, number one, how many people 
just go out, that there's not even a question because they're, they're such dinky little thing. And so, for example, in Houston, where there was a major piece of lit- litigation about that, it turns out now there will be about 20,000 people who had been arrested uh, in uh, Houston, Texas, who uh, they're, they're just released. There's no bo- uh, bail thing uh, at all for them. Uh, and uh, that's a lot of people uh, in, 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 in Houston. The next category uh, are people where uh, the person uh, in the court, the judge, uh, can uh, make a, uh, a proposal to hold for bail, but the, uh, the other side uh, can rebut it. Uh, and then third, there are those, a very small number, uh, where uh, we're worried about safety, which we have to, but it's a very small number. I mean, you're talking about, in New York State, 20,000 people are, on a given day are in jail, and they're not guilty of anything. These are big numbers, and they shouldn't be there. And the idea that 70% of the 20,000 people, they're there in jail across this state, and they haven't, they're not guilty of anything because they haven't been taken to trial. This is what we have to change. Thank you again for, uh, for taking the time. F- Welcome to In the Courts. Alex Lynn, have you been arrested for terror-related weapons charges? (laughs) Yes. We'll save that for another episode. Um, Here are Alex Lynn and Victoria Bekempis. I'm going to step away and hum the song from the Aristocats. Everybody wants to be a ba-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Cat. Thank you, Harry. Hi, Victoria. Hello. I hear we're going to talk about mob shit today. We are. We are. Or and and mob shit adjacent shit. Yeah, it's right. gonna it's gonna be. Um, can I can I say mob a palooza? Is that okay? <laughs> I mean, is it okay with you? If you're comfortable with it, I'm comfortable with I, it. I mean, I'm not comfortable with anything ever. <laughs> so I mean, it's a miracle that I've left my house, I'm not just curled into a ball and cried because of the rain. But I'm happy to be here. Before we get to like mob a palooza, let's run through what else is going on in the New York courts. Definitely, definitely. So we had a couple of uh, things happen this week. First off, is that Statue of Liberty climber. Trisha Therese Okumu, she was sentenced on Tuesday for her death-defying ascent up the Statue of Liberty, like, onto onto the base. Um, she got five years of probation and 200 hours of community service. It was an interesting sentencing. Prior to her entry into the courtroom, you know, when I got there, um, her face had a lot of tape on it. Her mouth had tape on it and her cheeks and the like. And I had talked to – I'd asked the supporter because she couldn't talk. Well, what does this mean? And the supporter said it's because they're trying to silence her. And then shortly before going into the courthouse, um, she put tape on her eyes. And it was explained to me that that was to signify that justice is not blind for persons of color. Uh, I have a question. One, what tape was she – what kind of tape was she using? Was it, it clear packing tape? Was it um, a, a light adhesive mask? Or was it a, like, sturdy duct it appeared to be clear packing tape. Ooh, um, that is ballsy. <laughs> to, to the listeners who want to know why there's a pause, I was like putting my mouth in my sweater and like like looking at Alex, like trying to signify, can I cough? And then she nodded at you me. You can just say, Alex, shut the fuck up. I need to cough. Well, let's pause and we'll cut this out later. Although I might keep this. I in. think you should. Okay. Um. So yeah, it appeared to be clear packing tape, and then she was actually needed supporters 
to help her, like, you know, move into the courthouse. And when she got into the she couldn't see. Exactly, exactly. Um, Even though it was clear. She didn't tape her eyes open. Well, well, no, I mean, I don't think that they were, like, taped shut in, you know, like, the horror movie sense. But, like, there was enough tape to obstruct vision and definitely get on, you know, the, the eyelid skin in some way. And so, actually, after the judge was on the bench and she, you know, walked into the courtroom, she had the help of, you know, two supporters leading her to the table. And the judge is like, why does she have tape on her face? Um, you know, actually, I don't want to know, you know, she can either take the tape off now or, you know, wait until a later date um, and so she can take the tape off and proceed properly. So the judge, uh, you know, uh, the judge... The judge was a little snippy about it. Who's the judge again? Gabriel Gorenstein. Gabriel Magistrate. Gorenstein. Next, next up, Billy, Billy McFarland. Failed Firefest fraudster Billy McFarland. Last week, the failed Firefest fraudster Billy McFarland. Wow, that's a great... The, the failed, failed Firefest fraudster. Wow, that was a lot. I am sorry. Did you just make that up? I, I'm sure I've used that phrasing in, in copy, you know, as per fantastic. tabloid time. It had been, you know, in court papers previously, and I, someone, I think, reported it, that the only stuff, or only known stuff left... Of his appeared to be two hundred and forty grand and two boxes of authentic Firefest merch, but what I spent a lot of time doing was trying to figure out okay if the pretty much uh, what one in simple terms can say is like the only stuff left were two boxes of things like fire T-shirts. And those are like the only assets that are kind of being eyed for somehow paying back, you know, the victims of this scam, the investors. Well, what the fuck is going to happen to them? So I spent a lot of time both digging into the forfeiture process and also just trying to pin down, okay, like what happens with this stuff? Because like you can't like give a fraud victim. I mean, you know, you can't be like, sorry about this fraud. Like there's this restitution that's supposed to like happen at some point. Here's a t-shirt. Like you can't do that. So I confirmed that the U.S. Marshal Service is in fact going to auction off this fire merch and that um, eventually the proceeds will make, make their, their way, way into the the coffer that's you know coffers that is are good. for the victims yeah are for the investors oh yeah, investors. the victim investors okay victim yeah. investors not victim like ticket buyers correct correct okay. there's civil litigation relating to the ticket buyers but now to the mob ah the mob mob of palooza is it gonna be shitty if i'm like bum, 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 bum. like if, if i play the godfather theme song Harry wants me to use Freddie Hubbard's recording because it's by far the best and has the best bass. Busy week in mob stuff, kind of, but also mob, mob adjacent. Adjacent stuff. Yeah. Yes. So after we recorded last week, it was, you know, uh, the two accused Bonanno honchos, Joseph Camerano Jr., accused Bonanno boss, and uh, his alleged consigliere, John, John Porky's and Coccio, also, they were found not guilty of all charges in this racketeering case in Manhattan Federal Court. So they were found not guilty. They are free. If you recall, among the defense strategies, but the one that really stuck in your head was that A, clients are being effectively profiled for being Italian and looking like mobsters out of a movie. That, you know, that was, you know, one defense motif. A very. You can't just wear a pantsuit and a gold chain anymore without people thinking you're a fucking racketeer. Racket- That's why I had to change my whole wardrobe. Is racketeer effectively. the right term? 
Um, I, I think it can be used as a noun for one who commits racketeering. I can look it up. Like I said, like, we'll look I it up later. I don't or know we how won't. to speak, or we won't. <laughs> I don't know. How to, I don't know how to speak. We'll see everybody in the comments. <laughs> All of our fans will be tweeting about this tomorrow. <laughs> racketeer. Oh, oh, oh racketeer. How dare you? <laughs> Uh, I am shocked, I'm shocked. said Mr. Higginsworth right as his monocle fell from his eye. Um, so, oh yeah, so among the other, you know, big defense was that the mob is dead. You know, this whole idea of a cost- La Cosa Nostra was, you know, belonged to movies of, of your blah, 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 blah. So, shortly thereafter, the purported Gambino crime boss, Francesco Frankie, Frankie Boy, Boy Colley, was shot dead. And originally, the reporting was that this is a gangland-style shooting, it oh, looks dear. like a mob hit. Like, that was kind of, like, what had been coming out. And then, we found out uh, later this week, and there was an arrest... That this guy by the name of Anthony Comello, I'm totally screwing up his name, but like I said, I don't know how to pronounce things. Um, it's now seems, the police arrested him, and he's the suspect in this shooting, but it now seems as if, according to the allegations, that this was some sort of a completely non-mob-related personal dispute, and that the guy, uh, I, I don't know if you can call him a conspiracy theorist, but um, I guess he showed up in court with a, a Q on his hand. Which is um, a QAnon thing. Yeah, Which Q-anons, I still don't even fucking understand what I, that is. It's like some internet conspiracy theory thing. I really don't understand it's it It's another either. like own the libs thing or no? It's it, like It's a, like anti-vaxxers but for existential things, oh, I would say. okay. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. So there was that. And I guess he, it was also reported that he tried to make a citizen's arrest of Bill de Blasio. Uh, what had originally, you know, been thought to have been a mob hit, a gangland-style assassination, it turns out that, you know, as per the allegations, this might have just been some guy who was a little bit, allegedly a little bit, um, I think we can say unhinged, who happened to shoot a guy that, like, you really don't want to, like, shoot. I mean, you don't want to shoot anyone. And then, oh, there's another thing that went down last week. A mob thing? Yes. Another uh, mob thing that went down last week? Yes. Yeah, so this guy by the name of Anthony, Anthony Pendrella. Pendrella. He's a reputed Gambino associate, and he was charged in the shooting death of uh, Vincent, Vincent Zito. Zito. He is accused of going into Zito's house and shooting him in the back of the head, and this is in October 2018, and then stealing the assets relating to Zito's uh, purported loan sharking business. And then afterward, going and visiting with the family, lots of stuff, some of it alleged mob related, some of it Kind of just like on the periphery, but not, you know, in the in the true sense. I mean, um, can we call any of it, can we actually call any of it mob stuff, or can we only call it alleged mob stuff? I mean, I think that one needs to use the words, uh, you know, uh, alleged, and unless a person really, you know, has been, you know, convicted of something, then I, I like the words purported. Just, yeah. you know, I like the word purported, like a purported... You know, purported, 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 yeah, purported, alleged, purported. Would that be how you describe a cat that's the suspect of a crime? Purported. Oh, Oh. and that brings us back to Aristocats. Yay! Yay! That's in the courts. 
Everybody wants to be a ba da 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 Is that Aristocats? Cats? That was my mashup of Aristocats and The Godfather. Oh, that's a Aristocats. No sh- like, you, you didn't hear that? <laughs> <laughs> FAQ is supported by a grant from Civil, a company working to fix the economics of journalism and support from listeners like you. We are hosted at the McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research, and we recorded this week at Alex Brooklyn's rent-stabilized apartment in the village. Special shout-outs to Emma Whitford, Jessica Ramos, Victoria Bacampis, Professor Peter Edelman, and, of course, engineer Adam Kamara. <laughs>